Welcome to Living Hero. I'm Jari Chevalier, and today our guest is Maria Nemeth. Maria is a former associate clinical professor at UC Davis School of Medicine, Department of Psychiatry. She has over 30 years' experience as a clinical psychologist whose wisdom and spirit-based work has brought greater clarity, focus, ease, and grace to the lives of thousands of students, readers, and clients. She has taught and coached through programs at Esalen, Omega Institute, the Institute of Noetic Sciences, her own Academy for Coaching Excellence, and many other organizations. She is the author of You and Money, Would It Be All Right With You If Life Got Easier? The Energy of Money, A Spiritual Guide to Financial and Personal Fulfillment, and Mastering Life's Energy, Simple Steps to a Luminous Life at Work and Play. Maria, it's such a treat to be speaking with you. Thank you, Jari. You teach people how to consciously direct their life energies, to really take life on, so to speak, and you call this activity living life as a hero's journey. So would you explain what that means? I'd be happy to, Jari. Um, I draw the uh, metaphor of the hero's journey really from Joseph Campbell, who so many years ago wrote uh, the book Hero with a Thousand Faces. And one of the things he challenged everyone to do and uh, in subsequent um, books as well was to see their own lives as a hero's journey. A hero has good times and bad times. A hero has goals and dreams and a desire to make a difference. And um, when I really saw that that what he was talking about was was just about every person's journey in their life, his or her life, that we're here to do something with our lives. We're here to make a contribution, to create something that was not here before we got onto this planet, and that this is part of a hero's journey. And, you know, if, if you can think of your life as a hero's journey, that everybody's life is a hero's journey, but it gives you a sense of meaning that you might not ordinarily have. Um, and so to answer your question, we're here to live out our hero's journey and to take energy that we have at our command and learn how to focus it to getting the things that we want instead of um, wasting it or uh, diluting it in any way. Oh, I really share your views on that, and I think people are hungry for meaning. As a creative person myself, I've appreciated how your books are filled with narrative and metaphors that really help your readers a lot to take in the abstract or more metaphysical concepts that you're conveying in a more concrete way. And one of my favorites is from Mastering Life's Energies, and that is the metaphor of being at a banquet table uh, with your eyes open or closed. And I'd love for you to flesh out that metaphor for us. But first, here's the question I have about it. Having our eyes open to the feast also means having our eyes open to the famine in a way. We see and feel all of life more and are aware of uh, the suffering of others and and negative forces as well as extending our range into what we are able to appreciate and take in of the beauties. And I'm 
thinking that many people fear this opening up process sure, of taking sure. life on. Absolutely. Because they're afraid of being more sensitive and, and self-aware and vulnerable and maybe not being able to handle it. So I'd love to have you go back to the metaphor, talk about it, but also talk about uh, why we ought to take this on and grow in this way and how you help people learn to handle more of life's energies. Phew. Uh, I know. <laughs> it could take all afternoon, right? Yeah, but I'll I'll let me let me see if I can if I can do this, okay? The uh the metaphor you're talking about essentially is uh a dream that someone related to me about everyone sitting around at a banquet table and some people having their eyes open and some people having their eyes shut at the table and the, the people who have their eyes shut they're uh they're hungry themselves and that ever so often someone who has their eyes shut uh, opens their eyes and everyone at the table starts cheering for them. And the people at the table are regular people, but they're also the spirits of Gandhi, of Jesus, of Buddha, of, of Yogananda, of anyone who has been a, a teacher for us that what they are doing is cheering us on to open our eyes to everything in front of us. And... And you're absolutely right, Jari. When we open our eyes to the table, we open our eyes to abundance. And in the energy of money, I started the concept, and I think I bring it through in in Mastering Life's Energies as well, but that abundance means everything. That uh, when we are told that we are here to live life abundantly, it means with everything, with the sweet as well as the bitter, with the difficult times as well as the good times. You remember uh, in the Bible, to everything there is a season, a time to reap and a time to, to sow. And when we open our eyes, yes, we open our eyes to the delights of the world and we open our eyes to the difficulties of the world. But I'll tell you, one of the things that happens is that when our eyes are opened, we see where we can make a difference. We see where we can create. When we're fully present to our lives in all its forms, we see that who we are in our heart, in our soul, is bigger than life. That who you and I are is bigger than the ups and downs, even the sweet as well as the, the bitter. That there is an aspect to us that far transcends all that and when we open our eyes and we see what's on the table, as well as we get in touch with who we really are, we begin to take delight in making a difference, in doing something that will bring more light and sweetness to the table. And and yes, everyone has this conversation. If I open up, I'll become more vulnerable. I've had this conversation. I still have that conversation. But you know... Vulnerability, the definition that I propose uh, in Mastering Life's Energies is that vulnerability is to allow the winds of life to blow freely over your soul. And when we allow that to happen, we see we have a lot more power than we thought and we see who we really are. We, it gets back to that hero's journey that Joseph Campbell talks about. So I hope this briefly answers the question, you know, that when you're when you're opening yourself up to all of life, you, you let the light in and you see the darkness as well. Well, I do think that it could take some coaching and it does take a, a good deal of courage, but that's what 
you are there for as a coach and a leader of coaches. So uh, it, there there is a birthing process there, and I'm sure you are you and your crew are midwives for that process. Oh, that's so, so sweet. Well, you know, people. People don't give, Jari, people don't give themselves credit uh, for how powerful they are, really, in their hearts. And it's easy not to give yourself credit because life comes at us so fast. And many people I talk to, they feel like they're just putting out one forest fire uh, after another. And uh, when we get caught up in the daily rush and grind of life and get pulled by so many things to take care of, we take our attention off of uh, ourselves in terms of who we really are in our hearts and and we lose sight of our innate capabilities and so in my in my work with people and our and our work at the academy here what we teach people to do is to get in touch with who they really are uh, in their hearts so that no matter what they're confronted with they find that they have more than enough courage to do what's there for them to do i want to ask you about uh, your philosophy on something. You have been very open and vulnerable in that sense, open in sharing your own failings and screw-ups in life uh, and having a very humorous and light heart about that, sharing that with all of your readers. And I wonder if you could talk about your philosophy on this. Well, it's it's more like this. Uh, (laughs) I found... I, to tell you the truth, I found that it took a lot more energy to pretend that those things didn't happen than mm-hmm. to just simply talk about it. And, mm-hmm. you know, when you talk about the mistakes you've made and your truth, anyone about this, and of course I end up talking about it because it illustrates a point about how we can make mistakes and keep going. So, uh, feel free to ask me about any of my mistakes right now if that'll, if that'll forward the conversation in any way. But, but the bottom line is that uh, that all of us uh, have our have our ups and have our downs. I don't know anyone, Jari, and I I've uh, interviewed people now over 30 years, people who are multimillionaires. I mean, very wealthy, and people who are just off welfare. And um, it's all the same. It's all the same. It's we do the best we can, and we make mistakes. We tell the truth about the mistakes we make. We learn from them, and we keep going. Mm-hmm. Well, I love that kind of humanness and transparency, and I wish that we saw more allowing for that in the political arena, for instance. And I just wanted you to know that I, I really appreciate that you do that as you're giving us just gems of wisdom. You're also showing your grounded human I just want people to relax because when you relax, something very interesting happens. If I can get behind the scenes for a minute. Yes, of course. Among among other things, I'm a clinical psychologist, you know, and I've done a lot of work with uh, neurophysiology over the years. And there's a part of our brain called the amygdala, and I don't want to get too technical right now, but... It's the seat, uh, for all intents and purposes, of our fight, flight, or freeze reaction. It is the seat of what I and the Buddhists have been calling monkey mind, uh, which is that aspect of our mind that is always chattering at us as it swings from doubt to worry and back to doubt again. But to get back to 
talking with people when i when i talk about my own difficulties the mistakes i've made people relax and when people relax it it cools down the amygdala it cools down that natural fight flight or freeze you know that fear response mm-hmm. and when people are more relaxed and their heart is open they can i've found they can learn a lot more and a lot more quickly so it's a good strategy to use when you want to put out some information to people and you want it to go you want to lob it over the transom and into their hearts that makes so much sense by the time you wrote the first book the energy of money yes you'd already worked with thousands of people using your methods in the you and money course so i'm wondering if you could take us way back to your very early beginnings with this work. How did you get started developing that course and how did you arrive at the many principles and the models that you teach? Well, I I started the course because of the mistake I made with money. This was 30 years ago. I joke with people, it's it's when Lincoln was president. And uh, I... Uh, loaned $35,000 on an unsecured promissory note to someone who I'd only known for three months. And uh, not only that, it wasn't even my money. I had borrowed it from an in-law at 10.5% interest because the man to whom I gave this money said he would earn me, I think it was 32% on my investment. And it was a a fraud. It was a scheme. Mm -hmm. It was a Ponzi scheme. And I lost all that money. And... um, I tell you, it really devastated me. And I was a psychologist. I had a full-time private practice. And I went running away from my friends. Uh, I didn't want to tell them about this. So I I went into my office and just started trying to make all the money back, seeing couples and groups and, and people, just so that no one would ask me what happened to that money. But you know what happens when you run away from your life's lessons. They come following you. And... The thing that happened was, I mean, you couldn't make up a story uh, and have it turn out like this because I was in my office. Really, this is a true story. I was in my office, not answering my phone if I heard it was my friends, you know, screening my calls. When I get a call from the Sacramento Bee, and I live here in Sacramento, and the reporter said, Dr. Nemeth, I'm, I'm a reporter from the Sacramento Bee. She said, we've been having a lot of trouble in Sacramento, I need your expert opinion. And, of course, I pulled myself up to my f- full professional height. She said, Dr. Nemeth, there have been a lot of investment frauds in Sacramento. People have been losing their shirt right and left. Can you tell me, from a psychologist's point of view, what kind of person even gets involved in those schemes? <laughs> and, of course, I was one of them. And, you know, I, I, uh, I started talking to her. You know, I said, you know, I might as well tell her the truth. I think that's when it started. Because if I've done this, other people have done this. So I started telling her about what had happened to me. And she said, Dr. Nemeth, are you sure you want to tell me? Because I'm going to put it in the paper. And I said, look, print it. Because if some, if there's someone out there who, who can learn from my mistake, it'll make, it'll take some of the sting out of this for me. So she printed it. And colleagues called me when they read it and friends. But Instead of saying, why did you do that? They started talking to me about their own money issues. And I 
And I saw that no matter how much or how little money people made, there was always the same, the same questions, the same difficulties. And, and I started to uh, get a lot of these stories together, and then I put together the first class called You and Money because I wanted to have a shift in my relationship with money. And it was just a sideline. I invited friends and colleagues. Well, long story short, turned into a seminar series, which now over uh, 25 years has blossomed into an academy and a, an extensive coaching series. And, and where did I get all this? Well, I had been to a lot of self-development uh, workshops and seminars I had studied with people who I consider to be masters at what they did, and I started taking the best of what what worked. And I did a lot of experimentation, and a lot of what I did those first two or three years didn't work. But over the years and working with thousands of people, if you're persistent at anything, it begins to grow and develop, and now it's blossomed into the program that we have at the Academy. So I tell people that I come by this stuff very honestly. It's not like an armchair exercise for me, but it's something that I've lived now for almost 30 years of my life. You're listening to Living Hero. I'm Jari Chevalier, and I'm talking with Maria Nemeth today. I'd like to urge you all to buy, read, and work with both of Maria's books and to buy them for people you know and love the many exercises and comparison charts and lists are worth the price of the books alone. You will not be disappointed. Maria, recently my son sent me the University of Southern California commencement speech by Charlie Munger, who is Warren Buffett's business partner. And these guys got so rich that they could literally buy countries if countries were for sale. And since I had just reread The Energy of Money in preparation for our talk, I was doing a little mental comparison of Charlie Munger's concepts and yours, just for the fun of it. And it seems to me that there were some points of agreement in behaving with utmost integrity and goodwill and to have one's eye on continuous improvement. But there was a stark contrast, and that was that Charlie, like so many people, spoke of being guided in business by sort of anticipating worst-case scenarios and avoiding them, uh, and also so that he wouldn't couldn't be surprised by them coming up from behind. And I do think a lot of people um, have that kind of mobilization, that fear-based thinking, and in your books, while you do speak of what you call trouble at the border, the really hard work of bringing your dreams into reality, you have a mindset that is much more related to positive thinking, and I'm wondering if you ever come up against people saying, oh, well, that's all... California, touchy-feely stuff. It doesn't. It's not real. Um, how do you how do you deal with that sort of contrast and overcome it in in conversation and and in mind? Well, it's interesting that you bring this up, Jari. From where I sit, 
Very often when people talk about worst-case scenarios and planning for them so they won't be surprised, it's not necessarily out of fear. Um, it's a very practical and pragmatic way of looking at working in physical reality. And um, in, in my books, what I try to do is make a distinction between metaphysical and physical reality. Uh, metaphysical reality being where, where we have our ideas and our dreams and our vision. You know, with uh, Warren, for instance, uh, uh, he's, he, has, he has vision for how he would like to see life on this planet. He has, you know, he really is very visionary and very generous. Um, and uh, in metaphysical reality, that's, as I said, the ideas, dreams, and vision, this is where we find what has real meaning for us. And then what we're here to do is to take our ideas and put them into physical reality. And the difference between metaphysical and physical reality are so uh, stark because in physical reality, you have three variables to deal with. You have first uh, density, meaning that whatever you want to do, whether it's learn to play a piano, open up a uh, candy store, or write a book, is going to take energy. And in Mastering Life's Energies, I go into all the different kinds of energy that it takes and that you have to focus because everything is so dense in physical reality. And I know this is kind of a new way of looking at things, but I ask people to kind of breathe and think about it in this new way. The other part of physical reality is that everything is impermanent. Nothing, I mean, you can make your best plans and say, you know, I, um, I want to keep things exactly the way they are, and we know that things are always always changing, whether it's in a changing business climate or your garden is changing or, you know, the mole on your nose changes. Everything changes in physical reality. The third uh, factor in physical reality is unpredictability. So once again, you can make plans, but, you know, there's this old saying, if you want to hear God really laugh, tell him your plans for the day. Mm-hmm. And when we go from the rarefied atmosphere of metaphysical reality into density, impermanence, and unpredictability of physical reality, we have all the makings of what I call in, in my book a game worth playing. And because if you look at every game in life, it has those three things about it. It takes energy, it's unpredictable, and it changes. So one strategy to deal with physical reality is is to not only have your goals and dreams in your heart, but as you approach physical reality, asking yourself some very important questions. What if my current strategy doesn't work? It doesn't mean what if my vision doesn't work, but what if my current strategy in getting to that vision doesn't work? How can I plan for the obstacles that are going to come at me? That is not negative thinking. It's very pragmatic. The only thing is that people tend to do one or the other. They either stay in metaphysical reality and don't do anything, uh, which is what I call metaphysicaling, mm-hmm. or they stay in physical reality just doing things all day long, but nothing of meaning or substance, and I call that busy holism. But what we're here to do on our Hero's journey is to marry both. 
meaning you have your goal or your dream or your vision, you keep those in your heart and you promote them while at the same time knowing that in physical reality things almost never work out the way you thought they would. It doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you or your vision. It just means that you need to change your strategy. I hope I'm being real clear about this because it's neither positive nor negative. It's a very pragmatic view, and what you need to do is keep your vision alive while you're doing it. Yes, these distinctions are very helpful. Thank you so much. Um, You urge people to create a money autobiography, and I have really seen your books as a way to health, a pathway to health of of a kind. And I have always considered writing and other forms of creative expression to be healing modalities. Have you found that when people work on a money autobiography and use writing as a tool for personal growth, that that it really is a healing modality of sorts? It really is a healing modality. And one of the things that I uh, suggest that people do in my books is uh, is in addition to writing, then to step back and observe what you've written, not analyze, because analysis would have you ask the questions, why did I write what I wrote, or where did I learn to you know think this way? And very often that analysis doesn't get us anywhere. But when people do the exercises in, in both of my books, what I'm always encouraging them to do after the writing, for instance, is step back and observe the themes. Observe what you've written. Observe the energy. See what you can see about the tone of what you've written. Not so much the content, but the general ebb and flow, the themes. Because when you get into this kind of a, uh, of a above kind of a bird's eye view above the clouds, above the fog, you can begin to see themes emerging in a way that you can then say, do I want to have these themes continue to emerge or is there something more interesting that I want to focus on? And all of my work has to do with observation and then shifting your focus to thoughts worth thinking, goals worth having, and a life worth living. I really agree that that's the way things work. And I don't know if you ever had the chance to read John Gardner's On Moral Fiction, but he speaks of how uh, fiction that really is meaningful, that, that stands the test of time, that becomes classic, communicates meanings that were discovered by the author in the process of creating the fiction and what you're talking about when people are working with their lives they're not trying to create a novel but they're able to write something and then step back and look at it uh, and and see the meaning there and then looking at it helps them adjust inwardly which then brings forth different meanings in their activities it really does because um, the the we are so capable of of uh, shifting our lives if we just give ourselves breathing room to see uh, what we are thinking. And 
for instance, in uh, Mastering Life's Energies, there's a number of exercises there that are specifically geared toward helping you see what you're thinking or how it is you think or the energy of what you're thinking. Not so much to analyze it, but because when you get this observational view, you can ask yourself the question, is this, is this the way, are these the thoughts that I want to continue to inhabit my life? Or is there something else more, more interesting? To give you an example, um, uh, a woman who wanted to write a book. And I've coached so many people now in, in writing books. It's, it's wonderful. And, you know, at one point she was, she had all this, these doubts and these fears about this book. It was a book on organizing, um, uh, organizing your office. And one day I just simply had her write down all of the doubts, fears, worst case scenarios, why she should never get this book organized, I mean, done, why no one would ever read it, all that stuff. She wrote it down, and then I had her take the monkey mind uh, checklist that I have in Mastering Life's Energies, which is a, you can literally see and categorize what kind of thoughts you're having. And I had her categorize, now what kind of thoughts are you having, either or thinking, um, worrying about the future, regretful about the past, uh, comparing myself to other people. I mean, there's a whole host of symptoms. But the minute she started uh, seeing these thoughts and observing them, she gained a little bit of breathing room. And then I said, well, is it more interesting to entertain these thoughts or would it be more interesting to simply write one paragraph today? And obviously she said, well, to write one paragraph. And that's how we started. We started with her writing one paragraph a day. Then she graduated to a page a day. At the end, uh, she was writing three pages a day. Now, that may not sound like a lot, but you know that three pages a day is almost four books a year. Mm. So... Mm-hmm. We gradually shifted the focus of her attention from her self-limiting internal dialogue to things that were more interesting, like slowly beginning at the border, that's at the border between metaphysical and physical reality, at the border, promising small actions and starting to take them until, voila, she had a book. In both your books, you speak of being willing as a very important concept for getting us through hard times, fear, uh, whatever we're up against. And I'd love it if you could go into this, I, this you know, power of being willing. I, I would love to. Uh, I'll tell you because, um, Joy, this, this power of being willing is the most potent tool that people have in their lives as far as I'm concerned. The three most powerful words you could ever utter is uh, our I am willing. And let me let me give you uh an example. Um, I uh have just uh, started work again. I've been away for uh, 11 months uh for the successful treatment of breast cancer and uh it you know it was quite a journey. Um with the chemotherapy and the radiation. And, and I know that anyone who listens to this podcast uh, either has been through the journey themselves or has a friend or a loved one who has been or is going through it. 
So this year, I was able to really see the power of it because there were times that I didn't want to do that. I had to, what I had to do that day. I didn't think I could. My monkey mind would go nuts, and I'll tell you what: monkey mind on chemotherapy is really is really an ugly thing. And you, but nevertheless. I would have friends who have done my work. They would ask me, Maria, nevertheless, are you willing? Are you willing to go through with this? Are you willing to have the next procedure or to do the next thing that's in front of you? And I found that I was able to say, yes, nevertheless, I am willing. And I saw, I mean, I've seen this all my life, but I saw it so clearly last year. But asking, am I just... Am I willing to do the next ten minutes and then the next ten minutes? And and I found it kept me it kept me going. And and as a result, uh, I think that my recovery from the treatment has been very steady and very sweet. And uh, for many of us who've gone through this, you know that I think when we call ourselves uh, cancer survivors, it's because in many ways we've survived the treatment. <laughs> <laughs> as well as the disease itself, because we got my disease in time, but boy, it was that treatment. So, I hope this is uh, this illustrates it for you how powerful. You know, you you may have a goal or dream that you want to accomplish. You may want to learn how to play the guitar, or you may want to open up a business or take a trip to uh, around the world, and you don't think you can. The question is, am I nevertheless willing? To do something, am I nevertheless willing to take an action that will bring that goal into physical reality? And nine times out of ten, you'll find that the answer deep in your heart is almost always yes. Maria, may you be well. Oh, thank you. Since we're speaking of the body, you do talk about in Mastering Life's Energies our relationship with our bodies. Yes. And I wonder if you could share something on that. We do have a relationship with our bodies. And in order to kind of get into the conversation, I often ask people to picture the following scenario. And, and that's, uh, let's say that you have a relationship with your body, but you discover that you and your body have not been communicating uh, well. And mm-hmm. so picture that you're taking your body to a couples counselor because you know when you're not communicating with someone we like to go to a couples counselor to learn how to communicate and so in this scenario you're picturing sitting there and your body's sitting in one chair you're sitting in another and the counselor begins to ask you what your problems are with your body and you begin to talk about them and say everything that you don't like about your body it's too fat it's too droopy it's to this or to that and then uh, the couples counselor after a few minutes turns to your body and says now what do you would you have to say about this person what are your complaints about this person and and the question is what would your body say about you you know she doesn't like me he he never rests me she's always feeding me the wrong food he he hides me from from public. Uh, you know, she's always talking down to me. The question being, how how long would you be in a relationship with someone who spoke that way to you? And of course, everyone kind of gets the idea, and they'd say, "Well, 
I don't know if I'd be around that long. And the essence of it, though, is that your body does stay around, and I ask people to consider the possibility that the reason it stays with you is because your body loves you, that your body has always loved you, that your body never betrays you, it never has betrayed you, it's just subject to the same laws of physical reality as everything else is, but your body has been with you from the beginning and it will be with you to the end, and it just, all it wants to do is enable you to uh, be here to make the contribution you're here to make in physical reality. And then I say to people, if you knew how much someone loved you like that, how would you treat them? And people always say, well, I'd treat them a heck of a lot, of a lot better than I'm treating my body now. And so the, the thing to look at is not whether or not you love your body or how you feel about your body, but to look at the possibility that your body loves you. And I remember one woman saying to me that out of really hearing that, out of really understanding that, she ended up treating her body well and she'd eat food that was good for her body and she ended up losing weight, not as a struggle but as a partnership, which is a whole different, it's a different way to use your energy, don't you think? Oh, yeah. You know, there's so much light in your teaching. I'm just wondering now about your own spiritual journey, Maria. You mentioned Christian themes sometimes, uh, 12 step. It seems like there, there's a lot of influence there and I'm curious about the path you've taken. Well, it's, it's funny because people ask me that a lot and, and one of the things is that, um, you know, my, my mother was Jewish and my father was Catholic and so I tell people I think I inherited the best of both possible guilts. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, my own, my own, um, path has been about reading about and then following and looking at wisdom teachings that have over, over the ages guided us for how to live a life worth living, how to lead a life worth living. And so what I've attempted to do in my teachings and in my writing is distill from, uh, wisdom traditions um, certain principles that we can use in everyday life. I mean, let's face it. What I'm what I'm writing about is not that original at all. But what I hope to be doing is to put things together in a way that we can use them in everyday life. Because I don't know about you, but but I need structure and, and and I need a way to put things into everyday living so I can see the results. If if not. I just, uh, I feel discouraged or frustrated. So for me, it's always been about how can we take the the wisdom tradition principles from the millennia and distill them down into everyday realities for how we can act. Well, just keep doing what you're doing because you are actualizing that synthesis and unifying Mm -hmm. the different wisdom traditions in this secular presentation that is simple and that anyone can understand. Um, I think that many people are really scared these days about the future. And I'm wondering, with all this wisdom, in your private hours, when you look at the state of the world today, how do you apply the convictions that you teach in your books to this really large-scale view, the social forces and the problems we're all witnessing in the world today? That's such an important 
question for all of us. What I found really helpful is to look at the teachings of uh, Teilhard de Chardin, who talked about the evolution of consciousness, but he did it in a particular way. He said that consciousness goes through periods of expansion and contraction. So, for instance, think of a snake that is about to shed its skin. Right before the snake sheds its skin, it's very, very uncomfortable because the skin is too small to hold it. And he says that's, that state of being cramped in and hemmed in is known as a peduncle. It's like a birth canal. It's like a period of fomentation, of really uh, unease, of, you know, things are are uh, are uncomfortable and cramped. Narrow spaces. Very, very narrow spaces. And he says what happens out of that is that after we go through the peduncle, we emerge into something called the next phylum. And what he's talking about is that that consciousness doesn't, progress linearly, but it goes from step to step to step, almost transformation to transformation. But in between transformations, he says, it's very uncomfortable. But once you get to the next, the bottom of the next phylum, what you notice is a lot of spaciousness, a lot of room to grow. And I see that right now with our uh, technology and, and the way that you and I can know within two minutes what's happening in... Um, in Morocco or in Norway or, I mean, the world is connected as never before. There's an incredible population density as never before. We have technology at a level that has not been seen before on this planet. We're all in this kind of uncomfortable peduncle together and the only thing for us to do is to evolve, to evolve to the next level. And so I see that we're in that place. Now, one of the ways you can tell we're about we're starting to evolve to the next level is that right now here and now today we have a black man and a white woman who are running for president and that in itself is a huge shift in the american consciousness to even consider having a black man or a white woman uh run for such a high office and I think if we were to all all to look at the evidence for going to the next level, look at the people who are talking about the next level of consciousness, look at the writers, look at the philosophers, we'll begin to see evidence. It's like in spring you see the little buds starting to push through. We'll begin to see evidence of this new evolution. And I think it will help us make this period of transition a little more hopeful and a little more full of possibility because really I I see it. I see the evidence all around and at the same time we're experiencing this intense discomfort with where we are. I love that image of the snake in the tight skin needing to sort of break through. Yes. That's beautiful. Maria, is there anything else you'd like to add and share with our listeners about your work and how they can reach you? I'd be thrilled to. You know, first of all, I want to thank you so much for the thoughtfulness of, of our, our talk together. Um, you've asked me, you personally have asked me some wonderful questions and have gotten my thought processes going. I'm so delighted <laughs> to know, hear that. It's, it's been incredible. And if people want to know about our programs, 
they can uh, go on our website, which is academyforcoachingexcellence.com, one long word. We teach people some very powerful tools that they can use to become successful in what they're doing themselves or to empower other people to become successful. So people take our courses either for their own self personal development or they take our courses because they want to learn how to coach other people and we are accredited through the International Coach Federation and uh, our phone number is 916-569-0779 but even as important as giving you all that information what I want to convey is that each one of us has creative genius everyone born on this planet is here to make a contribution. Everyone wants to know that his or her life has counted for something. And we do have the ability to go for our goals and dreams. And sometimes we don't reach them not because, it's not because we, there's anything wrong with us or our goals or our dreams, but we just haven't developed the skill sets necessary to do it. So um, I encourage everyone to hold fast to your goals and dreams. Allow them to not only marinate inside of you, but talk with other people. Get support for them. Remember that you were endowed with creativity for a reason, and that's because, truthfully, you are here to make a difference and to do something with your life. Oh, Maria, thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much. 